This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Hi there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good day. Russia's war in Ukraine continues to drive forward world events in ways that align with Bible prophecy. We can see this in a major announcement made by Poland this week. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, we've got some more news coming out of Europe's rising superpower, military superpower, uh, with Poland yet again talking about a uh, pretty big defense spending hike. So uh, Poland announced, or the Polish prime minister announced on January 30th, that this year, Poland is going to be spending 4% of its GDP, 4% of its economic output on its military. That's That would put it number, basically make it the highest defense spender as a proportion of its economy within NATO. Now, Poland, they've already said, and we've already talked about uh, Poland spending more on their military, but this is a dramatic acceleration of some of these previously announced plans. So in the past, they've talked about aiming to spend 5% of their military uh, of their economy on their military over the next, you know, kind of five years or so, eventually reaching that level. But it's quite dramatic for them to say, you know, no, we're doing it this year. Uh, we're making we're making that boost. Uh, they're already the third highest NATO spender in terms of their military at two point four percent of their GDP, and uh, you know, they're 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 shopping. They're rapidly going around the world, buying up pretty huge amount of tanks. They signed a $1.4 billion deal for over 100 Abrams tanks from the United States. We've talked about that already. They purchased 250 Abrams tanks earlier in the year. Uh, they got a 1,000 of some other type of tank from South Korea, 48 fighter jets from South Korea. Uh, so some very significant changes from, from Poland. Now, Poland's economy, they're not... Their economy is small. Their economy is a lot smaller from some, than someone like, say, France or or Germany. Uh, so, okay, they're spending a bigger proportion of their defense uh, on on there. They're not outspending some of those guys, but it starts to put them in the in the big leagues. So, uh, Poland spending four percent right now. Poland's kind of like about the same t- same size as the Netherlands in terms of their military. But if they nearly double that to four percent, the way that they said that's going, they're going to do, well, that rockets them up the league table. That puts them on kind of above Canada, uh, around Australia or Italy in terms of defense spending. So, yeah, okay, maybe to say that Europe's rising military superpower is, is, is maybe mm-hmm. a bit facetious, but certainly it, it's them making a concerted effort to join the big leagues. So let's let's talk about what's motivating this. This is something that uh, our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry has drawn a lot of attention to over the years, that it is Russian aggression that is causing European nations across the board, but particularly Eastern European nations, to recognize the need to step up militarily. Put this in the context of what we're seeing from Russia in Ukraine and this uh, 
prophetically significant trend that Gerald Flurry has been talking about. Right. I and mean, that signal is very clear. If you're a neighbor of Russia that's not super friendly to Russia, uh, you could be on the menu. And Poland has been brutally dominated by Russia repeatedly in its history. They were uh, obviously split between Germany and Russia at the start of World War II. Russia came in there, executed, uh, I think it was around 20,000, maybe even 30,000 Poles, you know, just rounded up anybody who could potentially lead any kind of Russian resistance and just shot them. Uh, they really don't want to go back to that. Uh, and they're not the only country in Eastern Europe that has memories of those kinds of atrocities. And so, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty urgent about this. This is uh, not kind of some kind of theoretical threat, but something they want to make sure that they're, uh, they're much better prepared for. So that's exactly what you're seeing. And this is something that, you're right, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry forecast. He kind of had a, a landmark article back in 2014, the Crimean crisis is reshaping Europe. It was written in response to Russia's initial invasion of Ukraine, where they grabbed Crimea and a couple of provinces uh, you know, almost a decade before this full-scale invasion where they're kind of going for the whole thing. He wrote, we have been prophesying for around 70 years that Eastern Europe would become a vital part of a new European superpower, a resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire. He said, this prophecy is directly related to the Crimean crisis. The fear you see in Europe because of events in Crimea is going to cause 10 leaders in Europe to unite in a sudden and dramatic way and in precise accordance with the Bible's description of that European empire. So that article is a great place to go to get some background on this. Another place that I think I thought I'd mention is Mr. Armstrong's book, or the booklet we have on Mr. Armstrong. He was right. That is just an excellent overview of so much Bible prophecy. And you know, that will take you through all these prophecies where Mr. Armstrong was writing that you're going to see Eastern Europe come together, and they're going to form a significant part of this European superpower. The Bible's very clear about that, too. One of the prophecies that forecasts this continued resurrection of the Roman Empire is in Daniel chapter 2. And there's a part of it, there's a statue in Daniel chapter 2 that, that uh, the Bible makes very clear as a forecast of the future uh, of world-dominating empires. And the feet of this statue, the, 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 uh, or the legs of this statue, you know, split into two legs. The part of the statue that exists when Jesus Christ returns, has two legs. It has an eastern leg and a western leg. Rome split into two legs, uh, and this modern resurrection of the Roman Empire is going to have an eastern component. And so Mr. Armstrong was saying, you know, you're going to see, he specifically said, you'll see nations break out from behind the Iron Curtain. You know, he was writing this during the days of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union. Uh, we saw that happen, and now we're seeing you know, these eastern countries kind of getting ready to pull their weight getting ready to form that leg and to become part of, of that empire. So it really does show, I think, fulfilled prophecy and, and fulfilled prophecies of things that we were talking about eight years ago. Uh, but even what Herbert W. Armstrong was talking about almost 80 years ago as well. So talk a little bit about the um, you're, you're, you're describing how this prophecy is uh, uniting Europe. And here you have Poland that's determining that they're going to spend more of their GDP on their own military. But it's also driving this unification among European nations and particularly uh, military cooperation. This is something that we've talked about a bit in recent years, that you see these European nations, not only are they beefing up their own security, but they're looking for safety in numbers with other European nations. And Poland has been 
particularly uh, open to that kind of cooperation with Germany and other nations. Yes, they have a kind of complex relationship here where, uh, and I think this is behind their decision to beef up their military, is perhaps they see a lot of this cooperation as not working at the moment. Hmm. Um, you know, they, they, their preferred partner would be the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, they don't have a history of being repeatedly invaded by the United States. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, uh, yeah, this is not this is not a fear for them. They would love to have more U.S. help. That isn't really forthcoming, or at the very least, it's it's inconsistent. It's not reliable. Uh, U.S. President Barack Obama really didn't back them up. That kind of changed under President Trump. We've got the Obama people kind of back in power under Joe Biden. Uh, at the same, so they're kind of forced reluctantly to look to Europe and to look to Germany. There's a much more disturbing history there, and. They're very worried that Germany has a deal with Russia. They don't trust Germany right now. They see they they see everything that we see about Germany being very hesitant in their backing of Ukraine. They've been very uh, public. You've had Poland's defense minister saying, "Look, we're not even sure who's Germany's whose side Germany's on. We don't we're not even mm-hmm. sure Germany wants Ukraine to win." Uh, so uh, it's not a super straightforward thing for them to say. Well, we're relying on Germany to defend against Russia, but at the end of the day, they're Poland. They're a small economy. Uh, if they're going to be able to afford to, f- you know, they're, they're kind of busting a gut to be able to beef up the way that they are, and they're still a little behind Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're kind of still maybe half, maybe even a third of what Germany is going to be, or by the end of this year. So, yeah, they they need help. There aren't good options for that help. And the bet, what we've seen is Poland just repeatedly decide kind of the best of the bad options is Europe and is and Germany. And so there are different factions in Poland, some of which are more willing to throw in their lot uh, with Europe than others. We've had po- one particular faction uh, kind of say, well, Germany lead us. We're more afraid when Germany does not step up. Yep. The current faction is a little more skeptical of Germany's leadership and perhaps more kind of rooted rooted in their history of being invaded. And they're, they're kind of more willing to poke Germany. But at the same time, they also see that they don't have many options. And you've kind of got this situation where the EU used to, about a year ago, they were going after Poland. They were trying to haul Poland before the European Court of Justice. And that's kind of been cooked into the long grass. Uh, and they have been putting aside these differences to to work with Poland. So you can see just these forces and this attack on Ukraine pushing Poland towards Germany, pushing them to this European centralization. They're not super keen on it. They don't have any other options. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's really just like Mr. Flurry said, this pressure from Russia uh, that is forcing Europe to unite. And you see this in Daniel II's prophecy as well. This statue, you know, it has feet of iron and clay. It's not a natural mixture. It's something that kind of has to be forced to work together because it doesn't get together naturally uh, on its own. And uh, it's exactly that kind of dynamic that we're, we're seeing come together in Europe now. The Crimean crisis is reshaping Europe. I'm looking at the cover of that trumpet issue, May, June 2014. It has the Russian bear attacking from the east and all these Eastern Europeans running under the wings of the German eagle. As you said, that's not something they want to do, but what other option do they have? Take a look at this article from Mr. Gerald Flurry. We'll link to this in the show notes. 
the Crimean crisis is reshaping Europe. You can also read our article, Poland announces defense spending hike on the details of this latest announcement from Poland. Thank you very much, Mr. Palmer. We'll look at Russia's activities now, the movements that are provoking these kinds of preparations by Poland and other European nations. Ukraine says they see evidence that Russia is preparing for a major new offensive in this war. To learn about this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, we are approaching the one-year mark of Russia's war on Ukraine, and it looks like Russian President Vladimir Putin is now preparing for dramatic escalation. So we know that during the second half of last year, Ukraine took back huge swaths of territory that the Russians had previously captured. And that included Kherson, the only regional capital that uh, Russia had managed to take. So that was arguably, I think, the most important defeat for Russia in the war so far, just a major humiliation for Putin personally, for the Kremlin, and for the whole Russian military. And ever since that time, the front lines have been mostly static. You know, for months now, the gains on either side have been really incremental at best, and in most cases, negligible. But it looks like Russia is planning something momentous now that might give them a big victory, and it may even be just in time for the one-year anniversary of this war, which is coming at the end of this month. Alexei Danilov is the Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, and he spoke about this on Wednesday. He said, Russia is preparing for maximum escalation. End quote. So, you know, he didn't share details about the intelligence that led to that assessment, but he said Russia is preparing for maximum escalation. And then we also had a statement this week from Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. He said Russia is working on something that will, quote, gain the world's attention. So very vague, but very ominous. And then uh, Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky, he also spoke about this in an address to the nation this week. He said, the situation is becoming even more severe. The enemy is trying to gain at least something now to show on the anniversary of the invasion that Russia allegedly has some chances. So, you know, we, we don't yet know how Russia might muster this maximum escalation and how it will gain the world's attention with some kind of renewed push. Uh, but there are more and more rumors of a second mobilization possibly of another half a million Russian soldiers. And officials on both sides of the war are convinced that something momentous could happen very soon. Well, we've been following this situation so closely, and there is always this sense of hope and optimism in the West that uh, Russia is going to be beaten back. And we've just been bumping up against this hard wall that Russia is not going to allow itself to lose in Ukraine. So we, we've been kind of expecting this, and there have been a few uh uh, examples of, of things that seem to appear that Russia is going to escalate. Uh, how much is this, say, uh, greater than what we've seen, the indications that we've seen to this point that Russia is really serious about this? Well, at this point, the uh, rumors of a second mobilization of half a million men are only rumors. There's nothing official about it. And all of the talk about a, a major escalation, you know, it's, it's all given without any details of exactly how it could happen, which is how it would be, you know, mm -hmm. if, if either side knew a lot of, you know, sure, top tier intelligence, they wouldn't be divulging that. Um, but if if there were to be another half a million soldiers on the battlefield, I, I just think that it would be numerically 
really difficult to envision any way that the Ukrainians could withstand just the sheer numbers. Yeah. Well, you've talked about just the the difference between the forces on the Ukrainian side where they're they may be more motivated as they defend their homeland, uh, whereas on the Russian side, uh, there's just so many and the regard for life is so much lower than it is on on the other side that Russia just is willing to continue to send soldiers into even if it's like a meat grinder situation uh, and half a million. That's a that's a whole lot of Russian manpower to, to do that. And meanwhile, on the uh, Ukrainian side. Um, how how are they i mean they've been they've been at this for a long time and it seems like there is some indication that they could be uh wearying of this war with the ukrainians themselves i'm not sure if we're if we're seeing wearying but what we are seeing is from their allies the western nations who are supporting them it seems that there very well may, may be some western kind of war fatigue setting in and uh, and that's just a major factor in this war because there's no way that the ukrainians would have stood a chance against russia for the last 11 plus months now had it not been for just massive amounts of assistance from western nations uh, the u.s and uk many eu nations they've given weapons and all kinds of other military aid, also training to Ukrainian soldiers, huge amounts of humanitarian relief. We spoke last week about the main battle tanks that uh, that are now being, you know, apparently sent into Ukraine. America has also given top-level intelligence to Ukraine so that the Russians can be consistently hit where it hurts most. So all of that has been just foundational for Ukraine's efforts to defend against the invaders. And of course, Ukraine wants to keep all the weapons and other aid flowing in from the West. But as we come up on this one year mark, and especially now that those tanks have been, you know, sent in, some Westerners seem to have the feeling that they've kind of done enough. Uh, Ukrainian Deputy Foreign Minister Andrzej Melnik spoke about this on Wednesday. He said, there's a feeling that now that the tank issue has been settled, people can put their feet up. A lot of people still don't understand that the war is far from over. Uh, and then, you know, one big theme that the Ukrainians stress when they're addressing the West is that other European countries are also very much exposed to Russia's aggression. You know, that, that goes against most of what we're hearing from Russian propaganda. Russian propaganda is an overdrive, just saying Ukraine kind of deserves this. They're full of Nazis. They're full of Satanists. Besides, Ukraine is historically part of Russia. It's this unique Slavic brotherhood that we have. Um, so all we Russians need to do is subdue Ukraine and then all will be well. Those are kind of the talking points that we hear. But anyone who buys into that has to ignore what happened with Georgia in 2008, even with Chechnya and Moldova going back earlier. You know, nothing in Putin's past indicates that a victory in Ukraine would stop his march. Mm -hmm. And and so Ukraine's trying to convince Germany and others of that. And polls show that most Germans, most Americans, most other Europeans understand that, but certainly not all of them. So I think especially as we near the one-year mark, this war fatigue from the West could be a bigger factor. And if that fatigue coincides with an expanded push by Russia, that could really be just catastrophic for Ukraine. Well, we uh, often talk about the booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, that our editor-in-chief, Gerald Fleury, has written that 
explains uh, Vladimir Putin's role in end time events and, and what we can expect to see from Russia in the time ahead. We'll link to that in the show notes if you want more information about the prophetic significance of what we're seeing over there. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Jacques. Over to the Middle East now, where Israel just finalized a deal to normalize relations with a nation that for the longest time would not officially recognize the Jewish state. For this story, we'll go to Mihailo Zekic. Yes, so on Thursday, uh, Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen made a trip to Khartoum, the capital of Sudan. He uh, had a discussions with uh, authorities there, including the current head of state, uh, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and are coming together to finally normalize agreements. Now, technically, Sudan was one of the countries that jumped on the bandwagon with recognizing Israel in 2020 with the so-called Abraham Accords. Um, a lot has happened since 2020. The country has suffered a coup it's under a, a military regime right now. There was supposed to be a signing ceremony um, in, t- in, uh, in 2021 with uh, then-Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok, but that got derailed. And uh, so now it looks like the countries are finally able to move forward. There still is a lot to happen first. Uh, they, both Sudan and uh, Israel agreed to uh, delay any formal establishment of ties until a transition to a normalized government with the international community can take place. But uh, looks like um, Sudanese uh, relations with Israel is finally on a more normal track of actually happening. So those Abraham Accords uh, really were a phenomenal development in the Middle East during uh, President Trump's administration. Uh, One thing that we talked about was just how much Israel should really trust these uh, these nations that it's uh, normalizing relations with. And Sudan, what what is your view of uh, the political, ethnic, uh, religious composition of, of Sudan that, uh, like, how close of ties would uh, Israel really want to, to have with this nation? Well, on the one hand, you just go back a few years ago, you had uh, dictator Omar Bashir ruling Sudan for a very, very long time. He was not a, a nice individual, to say the least. He was the first... Uh, head of state to be indicted by the International Criminal Court for things like genocide, war crimes. He was a friend of Iran. Um, in 2019, a coup led by Burhan removed him, and Sudan looked like it was coming towards becoming a more normal country. So in one sense, you could see why Israel would want to have ties with them. But you have to remember, Burhan, he's, he's not a good Democrat in and of himself. He's done more to maybe normalize Sudan with the international community than, say, Bashir did. But he was still a general within Bashir's establishment. This is the same guy that was accused of ethnic cleansing in the Darfur. This is the same guy, uh, I mean, Bashir, I mean, same guy that uh, made relations with Iran. And Burhan's part of this uh, holdover from that regime. And we talked about uh, when the United Arab Emirates and some of these other countries made deals with Israel. We talked about how we shouldn't trust them. Compared to uh, Sudan, those countries are a lot more trustworthy partners. Um, Again, it's a military junta, uh, well, or a military regime. They ousted a democratically elected prime minister, Abdallah Hamdok, uh, Burhan and his uh, cohorts. And in, in uh, 
the transition of power between Bashir, Hamdok, all these guys are protests going on in Khartoum, and Buran cracked down on them. There were reports of people dragging up uh, like uh, whole scores of bodies from the Nile River. People were just shot and just thrown in rather carelessly. So he's not exactly the kind of person you'd want to trust. And even if you did trust him, and this is the case with a lot of Arab states, maybe the governments want to have deals with Israel, but the people don't. Um, over 80% of the Sudanese people, according to a 2020 poll, rejected normalization with Israel. And uh, a majority also supported uh, getting personally, or at least Sudan, getting involved into the Palestinian call. Su Sudan is an Arab state, after all. And the situation in Sudan is still pre pretty volatile. It's basically always has been since it became an independent country. And even if Burhan does prove himself to be a trustworthy partner, there's no saying that he's going to be there for long, that, that there wouldn't be another revolution and the Sudanese people find someone even more unsavory to take over and uh, do business. So the, the deal that uh, Sudan and Israel just announced, how much is, say, security cooperation a part of that? Well, at this point, the deal isn't public uh, yet, or the, all, the, all the details of the deal, but Burhan has announced that there is going to be security cooperation, defense cooperation, as well as more minor things like agriculture, energy, whatnot. Keep in mind that this is a country that until recently was one of the countries on the U.S. Uh, state sponsor of terrorism list. Again, in an administration uh, Burhan was a part of. And Israel to be showing its cards per se, uh, obviously for security cooperation, Israel have to open up on, say, what Mossad might be uh, involved in in different countries, how the Israeli military structure doesn't work. It'd be opening up um, a lot of sensitive material for this country that, again, is not necessarily the most trustworthy. So it might not, I mean, they'd have to give something to get Burhan on board with this, but this isn't necessarily the wisest move for Jerusalem. We uh, have an article by Gerald Flurry on the website, Deadly Flaw in Mideast Peace Deals, that uh, our editor-in-chief wrote after the Abraham Accords were signed. And we'll link to that in the show notes if you want information about why this is something that Israel uh, should be cautious about, and this may end up uh, hurting the Jewish state. Go check that article out. Thank you very much, Mr. Zekich. A lot of hullabaloo has surrounded U.S. President Joe Biden possessing classified documents. One analyst says that as scandalous as this is, it might actually be a distraction from an even bigger Biden scandal. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this Biden classified document scandal just keeps making headlines. They've uncovered up to four troves of classified documents uh, spread across Biden's house uh, and his office at the Penn-Biden Center in Washington, D.C. So it's a lot of people out there really trying to... Um, figure out what to make of this from from Biden's standpoint personally I think it's pretty easy to come up with a come up with an angle for this story and it's just the the rank hypocrisy of someone who just excoriated uh President Donald Trump for the classified documents he had at Mar-a-Lago which is 
a pretty secure place with security guards and security systems and other things when he's got classified documents at the Penn Biden Center, which is like a Chinese funded think tank. There's one report there just like how many how many like Chinese espionage agents are probably working for the University of Pennsylvania uh, at this place where they're keeping these documents. Um, So I think I think the hypocrisy angle definitely gets bet down to a uh, Biden personally, but it's interesting to see what's the deep states trying to uh, trying to make of this because uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, he he did finally open a, a special counsel into this classified document scandal. Uh, I've seen a few people wondering is like, well, is the deep state turning against Joe Biden and getting ready to throw him under the bus? Uh, and if that's <laughs> if that's true, uh, if that's true, they're definitely going to need um, some more shocking revelations from these document troves than we've seen so far uh so far there's <laughs> there's been plenty enough to highlight the hypocrisy of how um, how biden handled his own document trove versus donald trump's document trove but uh but nothing <laughs> nothing so far that's going to get him removed from office but there was uh, one analyst writing for american greatness who had um an interesting take on this, which I, th- I think he may have hit the nail on the, the head here, uh, about this really being uh, a red herring from the bigger story of Chinese Biden collusion. Um, the deep state, they, they do do that. I've, we've definitely seen that before, where if, uh, if someone's getting too close to a big story they don't want uncovered, uh, they'll even throw out some dirt on themselves on a smaller story hmm. to distract from it. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if that's what that's what this is, because uh, Joe Biden, like right pretty soon after taking office, he reversed a Trump era policy of cracking down on Chinese spies. Um, President Trump, after we found out there was something like twenty five thousand Chinese spies in the nation, really went on to uh, like a crusade trying to root some of these people out. Uh, And then. um, and then Biden reversed that. I think some Chinese, some university um, presidents had complained that Trump's uh, that Trump's attempt to root out Chinese spies was scaring Chinese scientists away from coming to America in the in the first place. And so Biden reversed that. And so we've really seen um, several interesting stories this month of people who Chinese professors and other people who really should have been investigated hmm. uh who are not being the uh probably the most high profile story this week is the uh patrick ho uh he was a chinese uh, espionage agent who was actually arrested in china a couple years ago um but the uh the expose on the hunter biden laptop showed that he had paid hunter biden a million dollars for like american legal expertise uh and so i mean that highlights the uh, some of these Biden Chinese connections, but they also had a, a chemistry professor in Kansas um, last month who uh, was facing up to 20 years in prison for a trip he took to a Chinese university uh, on charges that he was sharing uh, classified information that was just dismissed uh, last month under Biden's new policy. They also had an ethnic Tibetan man working for the Chinese Communist Party who had infiltrated the senior levels 
of the New York City Police Department, keeping tabs on the Tibetan community in New York City for the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, that was also just summarily dismissed uh, this week. They didn't, they didn't even really give a reason other than like the Biden's new policies to not press Chinese um, university professors and apparently police officers too hard. But, uh, but Mike Pompeo, who was Donald Trump's secretary of state, uh, gave an interview with Fox News this week where he really highlighted the fact that uh, the Chinese Communist Party is inside every American major university, including Pennsylvania University and the Penn Biden Center where that fourth trove of classified documents were, were found. And so uh, it's really one of these stories that... Um, I mean, Donald Trump was going after it. Biden, Joe Biden backed off of it. It's really giving uh, the Chinese a chance to steal millions of dollars of industrial secrets. I think the latest estimates I've seen said that the Chinese espionage steals about $600 uh, billion worth of trade secrets <laughs> uh, a year. So approaching what America's defense budget is. Um, and Biden really is just turning a blind eye to that. And it's, it's one of those stories that um, journalists in America need to pay <laughs> right. more attention to. And there might be there there might be several reasons why they're not paying attention to it. But at least this analyst in American greatness is wondering if they might just be <laughs> uh, spending maybe a little too much time on classified document troves hmm. that have not turned up anything more significant than Donald Trump had at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, right. Although I, I, I suppose it just like what you're bringing out about the um, the fact that you have Chinese presence in uh, the, the university where he had those documents. And there's some evidence even that that Hunter Biden has connections uh, and he had access to those uh, those documents. We don't know what was in them, but there there certainly could be something there where there's uh, classified information that's being compromised or being sold to uh, the Chinese. Right. I mean, today, I mean, <laughs> Merrick Garland could come out tomorrow with a huge expose on just how much how classified the information was uh today we don't really know it was in the documents but i think the biggest story is where they mm -hmm. were yeah and the fact that like donald trump's classified documents were in uh, a former president's residence that's pretty secure where um barack obama's storing classified documents in some random warehouse in chicago uh and joe biden storing classified documents uh in an office where his son had a key and the Chinese Communist <laughs> Party is funding it through this, uh, through one of the university exchanges they have with uh, Pennsylvania State University. Mm -hmm. So uh, Hunter Biden or any number of Chinese agents could have seen whatever was in that classified document trove. Hopefully it was just aviator glasses, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you, I think you the, never know. <laughs> the, the, the overall point of... You, you were talking about just how uninterested in this story the press seems to be, and that, that really is true just about across the board that you would think that with as much evidence as there is of uh, Joe Biden being compromised, uh, that he that he could easily be blackmailed. There could be information that any number of these uh, foreign agents, enemies of the United States have against him and, and you know, take accepting money from 
uh, various sources. There's so much information that shows that this really is a national security threat. And people really do seem to be asleep to the real nature of the threat. There's no sense of urgency or vigilance. Right. And, and then that phrase asleep is well, uh, well chosen. That's probably the article we can put in the uh, show notes today is wake up to the, the threat from China uh, that really highlights the need for American journalists to pay more attention to Chinese espionage as a news story. And it, it covers uh, two, uh, well, more than two, but uh, more than two prophecies regarding this story. There's two I'll probably highlight today. Um, one of them coming from the Book of Amos, just about the uh, level of corruption amongst the elites in end-time Israel. Uh, it talks about these elites who, like, uh, lie on beds of ivory and uh, listen to uh, music composed by King David and and drink bowls, uh, entire bowls full of wine while they're simultaneously oppressing the poor, oppressing their needy, uh, and selling out their nation's national interest. And so that comparison between ancient Israel today is really poignant. There's also another verse that has an interesting turn of phrase in Isaiah 2 and verse 6 that um, talks about God punishing end-time Israel uh, because they've been uh, replenished with... um, uh, replenished with like philosophy from the east. It actually uses it from the east. And uh, in Isaiah's day, that's probably talking about um, Babylon and Assyria, which were east of Jerusalem. But uh, uh, but today, but today it is just interesting because we uh, all these spies actually come from a region of the world that's known as the the Far East. Uh, and so you you definitely see uh, Israel being replenished by a. Uh, uh, communist ideas and um, technologically exchanges that come from an Eastern power. Mm-hmm. Wake up to the threat from China. We will link to it in the show notes. Go check that article out. Thank you very much, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, European nations looking to Algeria and Libya for energy sources. Turkey blocking Sweden's bid to join NATO. And a county in California says they'll no longer use Dominion voting machines. We'll be right back. Listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. More ripple effects from the Ukraine war. European nations are having to look for energy from sources other than Russia. At least one nation is seeking this in North Africa. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Giorgia Maloney, the Italian prime minister, has been touring North Africa over the last week or so, uh, not to try and get some winter sun. Uh, I guess she lives in Italy. That's maybe less of a a big drive for them than it is for us here in uh, cloudy gray uh, Britain. But uh, she's looking to diversify energy needs. This is something that we kind of jumped on almost as as soon as Russia invaded Ukraine and and Europe started looking for for different energy suppliers. Uh, 
that you would see Europe getting much more involved in North Africa and the Middle East because of this. And uh, that's exactly what we saw from this visit. So she was in Algiers from January 23rd to 24th, along with the boss of ENI, that's Italy's energy company. And uh, they signed a whole bunch of agreements with Algeria's energy company, Sontrac. So you've got these different state energy companies getting together. Uh, they're even kind of looking, there's a growing movement within Europe looking to build a trans-Saharan energy pipeline, bringing, I think that one is oil up from Nigeria into Algeria, where it can then be more easily brought across into Europe. Uh, they were looking a lot more at things like natural gas with this agreement, but they uh, said that they were planning to make Italy uh, a, a platform of distribution of Algerian energy products in Europe. And since the Ukrainian war, Algeria has become Italy's largest energy supplier. But if you're trying to replace Russia, you, you need uh, some fairly significant improvements in your energy supply. It's not just a case of getting one of your suppliers to turn things up a notch. You probably need to start bringing some new suppliers along. And so that brought on the next stage in the trip, which was Tripoli in Libya. So on the tw uh, 28th, you had once again Maloney and once again the boss of Italy's energy company, uh, this time meeting with Libya's national oil company with signing an $8 billion agreement. Associated Press called it the largest single investment in Libya's energy sector in more than two decades. Uh, and this is, this is very interesting because Libya is still not stable. You know, they've had they got rid of Gaddafi, everything shattered. You had a civil war with different countries backing different governments. There was a unity accord that was signed. That's starting to look like it's breaking down. You've still got two different power centers uh, basically vying with each other. I don't think it's come out in, in full scale warfare at the moment, but it's looking like it could head that way very quickly. And Italy's coming in doing deals with one faction. So they're potentially setting themselves to uh, up to getting involved in this in this civil war. So it, it's kind of a risky strategy, but it, it's potentially a high risk, high reward strategy. I guess Libya does have some of the best energy supplies in North Africa. If you're in Italy's position and you're looking for nearby places to go and get oil, there's a lot of untapped potential in Libya. And so uh, they're uh, they're moving in there. So uh, one of the major powers of Europe uh, increasing its presence in North Africa, prophetically speaking, this has a lot of important reverberations. Put it in context for us, Mr. Palmer. Right. This is why we've been watching this right from the start. Uh, you've got Daniel chapter 11 that describes this clash between a European king of the north and radical Islam led by Iran, this king of the south. Uh, these two are really going at each other and in, 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 uh, you know, doing a lot of fighting. Well, if Europe can kind of get a lot of their energy from Russia, they're not super involved in the Middle East. Well, how does that happen? Uh, instead, what you would expect is a Europe that gets much more drawn into the Middle East, drawing the enmity of radical Islam and, radi and Iran that's really the head of radical Islam. Uh, and that's what we've seen since they've uh, been involved in Ukraine. And there's a lot of reverberations from the Ukraine attack uh, for Russia's invasion in Ukraine that are kind of shaking across the Middle East. You've also got, for example, Egypt, that Daniel 11 says they're going to be aligned with Iran and radical Islam. And their government's kind of a bit tottery right now. They're having real trouble getting uh, grain because they used to get a lot of their grain from Ukraine and the war is pushing up food prices and these kind of things. So uh, the 
you know, there's all kinds of echoes from this from this war. But one of those big ones is now, or well, Europe desperately needs another oil supplier. So you've got Emmanuel Macron flying off to Qatar and the United Arab Emirates and all of these different places and Maloney going into North Africa and everyone's kind of trying to find more places to get energy from. Suddenly now that gives them, a, that brings them into the Middle East. It gives them now a bigger reason to get involved in Libya, a bigger reason to get involved in Algeria. There's more at stake. So you'll see them, say, supplying more weapons to friendly governments in the area, uh, being more concerned about terrorism in the area, being more concerned with what goes on with the Suez Canal and some of these trade routes, which is going to bring them into con conflict with Iran that's trying to use radical Islam to spread out and really dominate this region. So it's all leading to this much bigger clash that is prophesied in Daniel chapter 11. We have an article about this. Italy sets its sights on North Africa. And I'd also like to refer you to an article from Gerald Flory back in April 2013. Watch Algeria that explains the larger prophetic context. And we will continue to watch that situation. Thank you, Mr. Palmer. We've been tracking a related trend in recent weeks. Europe getting poked and pushed by Iran and taking a firmer stance against the Islamic Republic. This week, France pounced on an Iranian weapons delivery in strategic Middle Eastern waters. To learn about this, we'll go back to Mihailo Zekic. Yeah, so this technically happened all the way back on January 15th, but it was only announced this week that uh, the French seized a large cache of Iranian weapons uh, in a ship on the Gulf of Oman. Um, it did it in cooperation with the United States forces. They found quite a bit of uh, military material, over 3,000 assault rifles, at least half a million rounds of ammunition, over 20 anti-tank missiles. And it was on a route that traditionally Iran has used to smuggle weapons to its Houthi proxies in Yemen, of course, fighting in, in the Yemeni civil war. Um, so according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, this is... Uh, uh, going to be an outgrowth of more proactive French, uh, a more proactive French role in challenging weapons smuggling in the Middle East. Now, normally the United States has been the main policeman trying to watch Iran and its activities in that part of the world too, but we're seeing Europe get a lot more involved in it as well. In this case, the French. How do you view uh, France seizing these weapons uh, prophetically, Simon? Well, in Daniel eleven verse forty, that's a place we often go to. Uh, talks about the king of the south or radical Islam led by Iran and the king of the north or a united European power butting heads um, together. And our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, has talked about Iran's control of sea gates, like the uh, Bab el-Mandeb Strait and the Suez Canal and the Red Sea being a big part of that. Yemen sits right on the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, and Iran has a lot of influence in the area. He's uh, written a booklet, Germany's Secret Strategy to Destroy Iran that talks specifically about Iranian involvement in Yemen. And uh, now we're seeing with this uh, France, uh, or this French incident, uh, Europe taking a more increasing uh, interest in what's going on there. Mostly, so far, it's been the Americans and the Saudi Arabians that have been trying to counter Iran in this area. But now we're seeing Europe specifically take a more, uh, if not a bigger interest, and at least a more public role than what they've had before. And uh, we could expect more of this coming in the future. Well, we have that uh, that booklet from Gerald Flurry, Germany's Secret Strategy to Destroy Iran, that uh, unfolds exactly what we can expect to see happen between Iran and these European nations uh, that really want to uh, 
limit Iran's activities there. Thank you very much, Mr. Zekic. Sweden and Finland announced last May that they want to join NATO. Turkey has veto power to prevent that from happening, and this week it said it will block Sweden from entering the alliance. To learn why, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, this is a story with uh, several different nations involved, but we can start with Turkey in a statement that Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan made this week. This was Wednesday, and uh, and he said Turkey will not let Sweden join the NATO military alliance. So we know that uh, both Sweden and Finland have been trying to join NATO since last year, just over their you know their fears of Russia's expansionism, worrying that they could be next. So they both submitted their applications. And there were some initial objections by Turkey. As you said, Turkey has veto power over who can join. But Turkey seemed to be working past those objections, and it was extracting some kind of some concessions from the Swedes and Finns. Uh, So late last year, it seemed like everything was on track for Sweden and Finland to join. But then a few days ago... A Danish politician, a far-right politician named Rasmus Paladon, went to Stockholm, Sweden, stood right out in front of the Turkish embassy, and delivered this vehement anti-Islam message, and concluded it by setting fire to the Koran. That, of course, is the holy book of Islam. And uh, Turkey is an overwhelmingly Islamic nation, something like 99% of Turks. So this infuriated them as almost nothing else could. And it prompted Erdogan to reverse course on his willingness to let Sweden join NATO. Uh, On Wednesday, he said, don't even bother trying to join anymore. And if we look at the details of this, the interesting thing is that it looks like Putin's Russia was actually behind the book burning. And you can see why Russia would want to pull off something like this. Russia sees NATO as enemy number one. They always want to weaken NATO and you know keep it from adding new members. So there's serious motive there. And if you look at this Danish man who burned the Koran, he had to buy a, a protest permit in order to stand in a public space and deliver the speech and all that. In Sweden, the law requires that. And the facts show that he did not pay for that permit himself. It was actually a Swedish national, Cheng Frick, who paid for it. And Frick is fairly famous. He's a well-known ally to Putin's Russia. He worked with uh, RT, this you know Russian propaganda outlet, and a few other outlets as well. So he has actively helped to spread all the Russian lies as far and wide as he can. His girlfriend is Russian. He, he regularly travels to Moscow. So the fact that Frick is the one who paid for this protest permit And the fact that the protest happened in a way that enraged the Turks and blocked Sweden from joining NATO, all of that was a significant win for Russia. And, you know, it looks like Russian fingerprints were all over this from the beginning. Well, it is uh, quite an interesting story. And there is evidence of uh, Russia being... Uh, having a lot of practice at that type of thing, stirring up uh, problems in order to uh, bring down other nations, to to uh, undermine other nations' national interests or further Russian national interests. We'll link in the show notes to an article that uh, that Jeremiah wrote about Turkey uh, denying Sweden's NATO membership. Turkey says a public Koran burning has blocked Sweden's NATO membership. And also uh, an article from several years back, 2018, about Russia pulling a, a similar operation in the United States and turning Americans against Americans. If you want to study into that, uh, that aspect of Russian activity 
more. You can check that article out. Thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. There seems to be a general acceptance of the fact that America's 2020 presidential election was stolen. And we had some interesting evidence of that this week. For this, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yeah, we actually have some good news to report this week. On January 24th, a Shasta County Board of Supervisors voted to terminate its contract with Dominion Voting Systems after next month's special election in Shasta Lake. Uh, This was a bit of a contentious vote, uh, but Shasta County is a pretty conservative county, and uh, many of the members on the board, or at least a few of the members on the board, had seen uh, compelling evidence that Dominion voting machines were used to rig the 2020 U.S. presidential elections. They did not want them to be continued to used in their county, and so they're voting to remove them as uh, soon as possible, really. Uh, There's still no official words on what they're going to replace those voting machines with. It'll likely be uh, an electronic voting machine company, which could still present um, some other problems. But Shasta is not the first uh, county in America to do this. It's the first county in California to do this. But last year, uh, Williamson County, Kentucky switched from Dominion voting machines to electronic systems and software machines. And the year before, Lander County, Nevada, did the same thing. Uh, So more and more counties waking up to the fact that Dominion voting machines can be rigged. Uh, There are several uh, prominent figures in America, including MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell and President Donald Trump, who are urging the whole nation uh, to even go a step beyond getting rid of their Dominion voting machines and getting rid of electronic voting machines, period, uh, and returning the nation to same-day paper balloting that can be uh, hand-audited after the election if need be. And that's probably the only way uh, that paper balloting, you're ever going to have free and fair elections in the United States again. Uh, so several prophecies we're looking at being uh, fulfilled in Amos 7 and 2 Kings 14 about uh, Donald Trump returning to office as an end-time Jeroboam figure. And it looks like for uh, <laughs> for these prophecies to, to be fulfilled, there may have to be more counties who follow Shasta County's example and uh, kick Dominion voting machines to the curb. All right. Thank you very much. Shasta County kicks Dominion voting machines to the curb. We'll link to that in the show notes if you want more information about that. Thank you, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Jeremiah and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Goy Nasu. An entire sea of water can't sink a ship unless it gets inside the ship. Similarly, the negativity of the world can't put you down unless you allow it to get inside you. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. to 
Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world. 